Woodhaven. All right, try that another time. Good morning, Woodhaven. All right, all right. Certainly glad that you all are here worshiping with us today. Uh, this is the third day of summer. All right, where's the excitement, right? Where's the excitement? I've been told that um, summer is an, is, is an exciting time for Michiganders. It's an exciting time for Michiganders. And uh, I've been told that um, the outdoor life in Michigan is hashtag off the chains, hashtag on and popping. All right, that's some slang for you. Um, so I'm sure there are going to be multiple opportunities this summer to have some rich experiences. And I would certainly encourage you to do just that. It's always an honor and privilege to be able to share in the ministry of God's word. If you haven't had an opportunity to tune into uh, the previous se uh, series that Nathan um, just completed uh, in Genesis, dealing with the first three chapters, uh, the title of the series was called Creation, Purpose, and Plan. I would strongly encourage you to uh, take some time to listen to it, cue it up, and uh, I, I, I trust that you would be blessed by it. Before we begin our time, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the great and glorious God of creation, and uh, all glory should be ascribed to you. I pray that during our time today that we would, we would glean from the truth of your word, and it would, it would shape us in ways that we actually need to be shaped. Would you help us, God, to take the attention off of ourselves and to place it onto you? Would you help us, God, to uh, not just go through the routine of hearing another sermon preached and end with an amen, but that we would be led to facilitate and transact obedience? I pray that this morning in your mighty name, God. Amen. All right, so today we are jumping back into... Uh, a series that I've been preaching through, and every time I have a standalone message, I'm preaching through uh, a revelation, specifically the letters to the seven churches. And so far, what we've, what, where we've gone, we've covered um, the first two letters. There's the letter to the church in Ephesus, and we've also covered the letter to the church in Smyrna. And today we're going to dive into, metaphorically speaking, we're diving into the letter to the church in Pergamum. You know that Ephesus is a loveless church. Smyrna is the persecuted church. And we're going to find out what type of church Pergamum is today. Uh, before we begin our time, um, I think it's helpful to understand kind of some, some background. I'm not going to um, labor you with this, but Pergamum is situated roughly 70, 65 miles north of Smyrna. And this, this is a city that's not necessarily known for any type of political or economic achievements. But what they are known for is the flourishing of religion. They're known for the flourishing of religion. And it's within Pergamum that we've got four of the most important pagan cults of that day residing there. And I'm not going to go through each cult, uh, but they are... They are major to this story. And again, they are, they are residing there. And religious life in Pergamum is flourishing in that regard. 
And it's kind of interesting because as, as John is writing this letter, and we're in Revelation chapter 2, we're going to take some time to read that this morning. As John is writing this letter, he is very aware of the fact that Pergamum is a city where for Christians specifically, because of the religious life, it's a city where confrontation is inevitable, right? There, there's, no, there's no casual Christianity that, 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 um, that, that, can, be, that can happen here. This is, this is a place where confrontation, because of what they believe, confrontation is inevitable. So what we're going to do, we're going to take some time to read through this particular letter, and then we're going to get into what we're going to cover today within the letter addressed to the church in Pergamum. So if you can turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, we'll look at verse 12, and we'll read the letter in its entirety, and it reads, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some who are there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat foods, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I'm going to come to you soon and war against you with the sword of my mouth. Verse 17 reads, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone. And with that white stone, a new name will be written on it. It's a name that no one, ex no one knows except the one who receives it. Again, a name that no one knows except the one who receives it. Again, what we have in this text, uh, this particular letter, it's going to a church that it's, that, that's facing extreme external and internal pressures to compromise in her witness. And it's throughout this letter, I believe that Jesus certainly has, from what we've read, Jesus has much to say to this church and its unique circumstance. And I believe that Jesus certainly, as he's speaking to this church, he's got much to say to us as well. Um, I love what Sam Storms says about Pergamum, and this helps to bring some things into focus. I thought I had it queued up with, uh, with my slides. I guess I did not. My bad. <laughs> All right. Sam Storm says this. He says, if the Ephesian church was guilty of elevating truth over love, the church in Pergamum, they're guilty of elevating love over truth. So one church is elevating truth over love. The other church is elevating love over truth. And what I want to argue this morning from the text is how this, this letter is, is informing the Christian church that's living in a non-Christian world, sojourning through a non-Christian world, 
to guard against misplaced allegiances. Again, how do we guard against misplaced allegiances? So um, before we jump into the text, my uh, growing, for, for my kids, we uh, would, family and I, we would uh, read through various books. How many of you guys are familiar with C.S. Lewis, just by show of hands? All right, we've got some, okay, all right, some C.S. Lewisites, right? Some serious supporters. We know he's a Christian author from the 20th, from the 20th century. Um, there's a book series called The Chronicles of Narnia. Anybody familiar with that? Yeah, yeah, The Chronicles of Narnia. That's right, and um, there's a particular book within this series called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You still tracking with me? Absolutely. All right, so, and what's interesting is that this book is telling the story of four kids uh, by the name of Peter, Lucy, Edmund, and Susan. In my home, it was Alexia, Ethan, Eliana, and Eli, right? <laughs> but they stumble. <laughs> I told my kids I'd, I'd mention them during the service, so. <laughs> but within the story, they stumble upon a magical wardrobe. And this magical wardrobe basically takes them to the world of Narnia, takes them to a world beyond their own. In Narnia, for those who know the story, Narnia is filled with wonder and adventure, but it's also a world that is filled with brokenness and evil. And what, they, what, what happens is that they learn that uh, Narnia um, is under the rule of the evil queen. The evil queen is called the White Witch. Why the White Witch? I don't know. But she's called the White Witch, right? Uh, and But here's the thing, though, right? There's another character by the name of Aslan who happens to be the creator of Narnia. He is the rightful ruler of Narnia. And it's pretty dope, too, because he's a lion, right? He's fierce. He's a lion. But Aslan is basically putting together an army to overthrow the witch's reign. And the children begin to learn that their arrival was foretold. Uh, and not only that, but they were to play a critical role in defeating the white witch and bringing peace to Narnia. And what's interesting about this story is that as all of this is unfolding, three of the children, they form an allegiance with Aslan. But there's one by the name of Edmund, and I'm not gonna mention any of my kids because that would be awkward, right? <laughs> but there's one by the name of Edmund who forms an allegiance with the evil queen, the white witch. And she makes some promises to Edmund, but these promises that she makes are empty. He, he, he's, he's given her his allegiance, right? Because of Turkish delight, she gave him like a, a donut, right? I think Turkish delight is the equivalent of a, of a, of a, of a donut. But she's, she's made some promises to him. And within these, these empty promises, what happens is that he begins to realize that these promises are not only empty, but they're dark. And ultimately, they, they're, they're promises that will lead to his demise. It's a death sentence for him. And... Where I want to go within this story is that Edmund begins to recognize that in light of the larger story, that he, he had misplaced his allegiance. He misplaced his allegiance. 
And I believe that much like this story, I believe the church in Pergamum, it's situated in a world that is full, full of wonder and adventure. It's, it's situated in a world that, that's also broken and evil. And they, like the children from Narnia, they are susceptible to the external, and influ- uh, the external and the internal influences on their allegiance. They are susceptible to having misplaced allegiances. And this morning, I believe that we're going to be reminded that as believers, that regardless of the culture that we're in, regardless of the social political context that we're in, that, that Jesus, who is the glorious Christ, Jesus, who is the sovereign Lord of creation, Jesus, who is the rightful ruler of this world, the one in Revelation where he says he's, he's the one who's freed us from our sins by his blood, he demands that he and he alone receives our complete, our highest, our absolute allegiance. So this morning, we're going to consider three ways that we can overcome misplaced allegiances. And we'll look at the first way. We'll look in, uh, go back to Revelation chapter 2. We'll look at verse 12. The first way that we do this is to recognize the external demands on allegiance. And we see this in verses 12 and 13. The letter begins in no unique way. It begins with a self-description of Jesus. And this is common within the seven letters. Uh, And what Jesus is doing within this self-description, he's utilizing an aspect of, of common cultural expression to reinforce the reality of his authority and his power. And he, he does this for the church's unique set of circumstances. And so for John's readers, it intros with the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. For John's readers, that would grab their attention. It resonates. And here's why because they would understand that Pergamum was given the right to the sword by Rome. And as an extension of Rome, Pergamum has maintained, they maintained the legal ability to to execute all whose allegiance is in in opposition to Rome itself. So there's this external demand on their allegiance from the broader culture. And with this external demand on their allegiance from the broader culture, they they realize that comfort's not an option, confrontation's inevitable, compromise is something that's looming in the shadows. But I want you to consider what John says about Pergamum in verse 13. He says, this is the place where Satan's throne is. This is the place where Satan's throne dwells. And I heard one writer say that, you know, Las Vegas is known as Sin City. Um, And Chicago, depending on the narrative that you believe, right, it's known as the Windy City or Chirac. But Pergamum is known as Satan's City. Again, Pergamum is known as Satan's City. But we have, again, going back to this self-description, what it's doing is exposing the external influences of the broader culture on this church's allegiance. And it's, zero, it's zeroing in on the fact that Jesus is the one who has ultimate power 
over life and death, right? He has ultimate power over life and death. It belongs to him. And that the sword of judgment that he wields, he's going he's gonna to strike down all who are in opposition to him. And I want that, I want that to just kind of rest on your brain a bit, right? Take some time to process through that. Because I think a good question for us to consider is where within the broader culture, we consider what's happening in Pergamum and the, 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 the threat to, the external threats to their allegiance. For us, where within the broader culture are there demands on our allegiance to Christ? I'm gonna kind of work this out a little, uh, a little further. Whose judgment do you fear? Again, whose judgment do you fear? Is it the judgment of the broader culture and the social-political climate of our day? Or is it the judgment of Christ? Do you fear the judgment of Christ? And again, let's take this a bit further. Whose sword do you find your ultimate allegiance to? Is it an elephant? Is it a donkey? Is it Supreme Court justices? Or... Is it the sword of the crucified lamb? Again, is it an elephant, a donkey, Supreme Court justices? Or do we find our allegiance to the sword of the crucified lamb? James Hamilton, he uh, did some work on the book of Revelation. He has a commentary and he stated that Christians in Pergamum could avoid the judgment of Rome by doing things that would put them in danger of the sword of Jesus. And like Pergamum, we all face situations where what the world judges to be right conflicts with what Jesus judges to be right. Oh, we find ourselves there today. What the world says is right, it does conflict with what Jesus says is right. And before we go on to the, the second way that we can overcome misplaced allegiances, I don't want to go too fast. I want to look back at verse 13 because Jesus highlights something that's fairly commendable. It's a commendable characteristic uh, to this church. He says in verse, in verse 13, he says, Yet you have held fast my name, and you haven't denied my faith. And again, Pergamum has these external influences from the broader culture that's demanding their allegiance. But Jesus recognizes and he affirms that they haven't denied their faith by yielding to these pressures. And I think this is encouraging. I think this is helpful for us because it, it, it reminds us and it lets us know that faithfulness in the Christian life is married to the reputation and renown of King Jesus. I'm going to say that again. Faithfulness in the, in the Christian life, it is married to the reputation and renown of King Jesus. To all that he is, to all that he says is right and true. So we've got our first way that we can overcome misplaced allegiances. We'll look at the second way that we can overcome misplaced allegiances. And that's to identify internal threats to allegiance. So recognize the external, identify the internal. And we see this in verse 14 and 15. And Jesus 
he, he spells this out with an indictment to this church. He was like, yeah, you're rocking it in this area, but you're not all that because I want to I wanna, I wanna focus on an indictment. I want to focus on an area that, that you need to assess. And Jesus says, as John is writing, but I have a few things against you. You have some that hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, that's a big word there, you, you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And in this section, Jesus, he's, he's identifying the, 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 the internal threat. He's got his finger on the post. Right? He's got his finger on the post. And, it's, and he's, he's dealing with this heretical teaching that has basically found its way into the life of that church. And what John does as he's writing this is that to, to, to really explain kind of the effect that it's, that it's that, that's taking place is that he, he interprets and applies an, uh, an Old Testament account so something that ha happened in the Old Testament, he applies that account, and the account was concerning Balaam and Balak and the children of Israel. He applies it to the church in Pergamum. And if you can, you can write in the margin, or if you want to flip to Numbers chapter 22. Don't you love the book of Numbers? All right. Book of Numbers, man, I tell you what, that is a great book. And I'm not being facetious, it really is a great book. It's a hard read, but it's a great book. It's a great book. But if you go into Numbers chapter 22, specifically Numbers 22 through 24, and I'm going to just kind of paraphrase what's happening and just follow along. If you're with me, just keep nodding. If you need me to slow down, if you need me to slow down, just put your hand up. I'll slow it down for you. All right. But in Numbers 22, Balak, the king of Moab, here's what happens. He solicits Balaam. He solicits Balaam to curse Israel as they prepared to cross over into the promised land. Everybody still following me? Yep, doing some, doing some paraphrasing, okay? And what happens is that he has an incident with a donkey, right? But even, even after that, he attempts to follow through with the promise of cursing Israel. But his attempt fails. And here's, here's what happens. Every time he opens up his mouth to speak, he actually ends up blessing the children of Israel. And Balak is like losing his mind. He's like, come on, man. I told you to curse them. What you doing, man? You know? Right? And so Balak is, is determined to keep Israel from advancing. Right? And he's fearful as well, as well. Right? So you've got fear that's driving this. And Balaam, he sees Balak's determination, but also he sees the money, right, <laughs> that, that he could gain from actually executing this. And we see in Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3, but also if you want to write in your margin, Numbers uh, 31, verse 16, here's what happens. Balak is Balaam is moved by greed. He advises Balak to have the Moabite uh, women seduce the men of Israel. And he says, here's what you need to do. Invite them to take part in your feast. All right? And get them drunk. 
All right. Feed them well, get them drunk. And the consequence of that, you'll see. All right. And we see what the what it invariably led to, which was sexual immorality. So when we flip back to Revelation 2 and we consider this particular uh, narrative being inserted in this letter, John's making a, a really big comparison that we don't want to make that we don't uh, want to miss. And basically he's saying, he's saying, look, what Balaam was to the children of Israel, the Nicolaitans are to the church in Pergamum. Let's work that out, work that out a little more. What, the, the way in which uh, Balaam was, uh, Balak was advised by Balaam to influence Israel from the inside out, that's the same thing the Nicolaitans are doing in, at the church in Pergamum, influencing them from the inside out. And they're, they're promoting and, and insinuating that, that freedom in Christ is a license to sin. All right? Paul would say, oh, foolish Galatian, who bewitched you? All right? But freedom in Christ is not a license to sin. The teaching of the Nicolaitans, it's, it's an internal threat on Pergamum's allegiance. And I think a kind of a, a big point that we don't want to miss, there's a lot of details that I'm, that I'm laying out for you guys, a big point that you don't want to miss is that Jesus, if you don't get anything out of this message, <laughs> write this down. Jesus is concerned about the theological purity of his church. I'm going to say it two more times. Jesus is concerned about the theological purity of his church. I'm going to say it one more time. Three times a charm, right? Jesus is concerned about the theological purity of his church. And I believe that as our Lord shows this great concern for theological purity, so should, so, so should we. We should so, show that concern as well. Going back to my man Sam Storms, he fleshes this out well. He says that Pergamum's commitment to love and tolerance, sound familiar? Had apparently degenerated into a, a weak, not like days of the week, that should be E-A-K, a weak sentimentality, sentimentality, that threatened the theological purity of the church. I think Sam, is he, he's hitting it right on the nail with that. And as you're writing that down, let's, let's just kind of consider some things, right? Where are we today with, with identifying internal threats to our allegiance to Christ? And we know that there's a plethora of teaching in America that kind of masquerades as Christian in name. And I don't even have to, I don't even have to rattle off any of the teaching, but I'm sure you're, 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 you're going through your mind. You're like, yep, that one, that one, that one, yep. But there's a plethora of teaching that, that falls into that category. And this teaching outright denies the gospel. It denies what Paul would say is of first importance, 1 Corinthians 15. And there, there's not only teachings that exist, there are even conferences People rally around, right? And these conferences, it, it's in opposition to what Paul spells out in Romans 1. 
where there's the worship of the creature as opposed to you know, that, yeah, worship over the creature instead of the creator who is forever blessed. I'm going to kind of spell this out to you guys a little bit more, right? Now, we've got these conferences that happen. There's worship of the creature as opposed to the creator. And there's also worship of personal autonomy. And I think you, I think you know where I'm going. If you don't know where I'm going, just talk to me after the service, and I can, I can chop it up and make it plain for you. But again, this, this indictment should weigh heavy on us because it's, a, it's an indictment coming from the Lord Jesus. And he's commanding, so interesting, he's commanding Pergamum, hey, identify the internal threats on your allegiance. These threats are subversive and antithetical to the truth of the gospel. And I believe in that same vein, Jesus is calling us to do likewise. He's calling us to do likewise. All right. Here's the final way that we can overcome misplaced allegiances. First, we're to recognize the external demands that are on our allegiance. We need to identify the internal demands for our allegiance. Lastly, we need to believe Christ promises. Believe his promises. John gives a word of exhortation in verse 16. And this, this word of exhortation is actually communicated to five of the seven churches. And it's within the word of exhortation, there's the command, therefore repent. Why, does, why do they need to repent? Well, because Jesus is calling for them to do that. And along with that, the judgment we think about just historically the, 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 the narrative that was, that was, that was placed uh, on this church's situation to explain what's happening internally. The judgment of Israel's sin and, and, idolatry, and idolatry, it corresponds to the greater judgment that Jesus will bring. So repent, Jesus says. And I, I, I like this, you know, within this command, I think at the core of it, this is the language of faith. I was talking with Nathan this week about this particular section. And he and I agreed, man, this is, this is faith language. This is, this is Jesus calling them to make a break with something and change their approach. All right? Make a break. Break dance. Make a break, right? And change... <laughs> Change your approach, all right? Change your thinking on the matter. And think about it, faith language. When we repent, we make a break with our allegiance to sin, the flesh, and the world. And when we repent and making that break, we turn to the gospel and affirm and embrace and reaffirm, and reaffirm, and reaffirm our allegiance to Christ and his promises. All right? We affirm, embrace, and reaffirm, and reaffirm, and reaffirm our allegiance to Christ and what he promises. Here's why. Because they are better. Jesus' promises are better. We'll move to verse 17, and we're almost done. Consider what Jesus promises. 
hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. So I'm going to give you hidden manna. I'm going to give you a white stone, but I'm also going to give you a new name. And this promise is extended to a church that's, that's facing external demands within the broader culture, internal pressures from the Nicolaitans, and all of this is leading in the direction of them embracing an identity and a practice that is in opposition with the gospel. Again, embracing an identity and practice that's in opposition with the gospel. John is helping us to, to recognize that the demands for allegiance are ultimately, again, ultimately, an attempt to meet the deep longings of the soul. Longings for provision, longings for acceptance, longings for intimacy. But these, these longings are longings that only Jesus can satisfy. Only our creator, God, can satisfy these longings. I want you to consider how he, how, what, what manna means to the church at Pergamum. He's saying to Pergamum, look, while, while there are temporary privileges to participate uh, and, and when, when you pledge allegiance to Rome, when we consider what Rome could provide in terms of protection and how you could navigate through that city, allegiance to Rome will never satisfy. It doesn't satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. The manner that I give, which is technically a symbol of God's provision, the, the manner that I give is myself. So feast on me. I give the man of myself. Feast on me. Feast on the riches of amazing grace from a glorious God. Because this, this grace that you have is the very provision that your soul needs. This provision, this manna, Christ himself, it's everlasting and not temporary. Consider how, what he says about this, uh, the white stone and the new name. He's saying, look, I'm giving you this, giving you this, this white stone. I'm going to give you a new name that no one knows except for the person who receives it. And this person, they're, they're, they're the overcomer. They're the victor. And it's, 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 a, it's, it's so interesting because in a comprehensive and glorious way, it speaks to how Jesus... In Jesus, our deepest longings for acceptance and intimacy is met. Because Jesus has overcome the, the curse of sin through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And this is, this is good news because we can now be freed from the curse and be forgiven of our rebellion and allegiance to sin. You tracking with me? This is good news. We can be forgiven, but also accepted by God through our intimate union with Christ. And when we think about this, this our union with Christ, we think about all that Christ has done for us uh, through provision, through our acceptance, and this deep intimacy that we have with God through Christ. This atoning work in and of itself that, that's, that's the believer's triumph. They overcome because he's overcome. 
Say it with me. Talk to me. They have overcome because he has over. Thank you. Amen. And this is a this 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 atoning work is not only their triumph, but it's also their boast. And we're going to stop there. This this atoning work is not only triumph and boast. It's a work that deserves our highest allegiance. It deserves our highest allegiance. And I think for Pergamum and for us, um, we've got to overcome misplaced allegiances. We're, we're like Pergamum, right? I said the Pergamum was kind of like Edmund, right? Um, we're susceptible to misplacing our allegiance. And I think, Jesus, I think John is very helpful here when he writes that the way in which we do that is by believing in Christ promise, promise of provision, promise of acceptance, intimacy, and triumph, because it's infinitely greater than any provision that we could ever receive in this world. And it satisfies the deepest longings of our soul. And it's what brings lasting joy. Because I think ultimately that's what we're after. A joy that, that's continual, a joy that lasts forever. And we have that in Christ so I'm going to, it's an abrupt start, it's, a, it's an abrupt stop uh, for a reason. Uh, I'm going to end it here. And as, as we conclude our time this morning, my, my prayer is that, Woodhaven, we, we would be like the church in Pergamum, that we would overcome and fight wherever we, we have misplaced allegiances. Again, that we would overcome and fight. Heard one guy say, the Christian life is not a cruise ship, it is a war. It's battleground. That's the Christian life, all right? That's the Christian life. Fight. Wherever there's misplaced allegiances, recognize them, identify them, and trust in Christ's promises. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us, and we are grateful, God, that in your goodness and out of your great love, you sent Jesus to die for us. This is a death that we certainly deserve because of our rebellion against you. And there are times, even, even while we're in you, and we know full well uh, the, the, the promises that we have in you, and we know of Christ and his goodness and the joy that he brings. There are times where that can be elusive. There are times where rather than having our allegiance firmly planted in you, our allegiance is divided. God, I pray that you would help us to assess where we have misplaced allegiance. And I pray that, God, we would repent, that we would make a break with it, and that we would run to you. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.